Hey there, listeners. Welcome to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum. Because it is a Friday, we're going to be talking about the weekly Torah portion or the weekly section of the Old Testament of the Bible, which is read in synagogues around the world. This week is actually a double portion, and I've talked about it before, but essentially the Old Testament is split into 54 different sections, and there aren't 54 weeks in the year. So some weeks we have to double up in order to be able to go through every Parsha each year, which we do. We read the Torah on a yearly cycle. Interestingly, last week was a double portion, and this week is also a double portion. This week, the two Parshiot are Aharimot and Kedoshim, and as always, we turn to Chabad.org for a summary. Aharimot and Kedoshim, for those who are interested, cover Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1, through Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27. Here we go. Following the deaths of Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's sons, God warns against unauthorized entry into the holy. Only one person, the Kohen Gadol, high priest, may enter the innermost chamber in the sanctuary to offer the sacred Ketorah to God, and that is only allowed once a year on Yom Kippur. Another feature of the Day of Atonement service is the casting of lots over two goats to determine which should be offered to God and which should be dispatched to carry off the sins of Israel to the wilderness. The Parsha of Ahare also warns against bringing karbanot, animal or meal offerings, anywhere but in the Holy Temple, forbids the consumption of blood, and details the laws prohibiting incest and other deviant sexual relations. The Parsha of Kedoshim begins with the statement, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is followed by dozens of commandments, mitzvot, through which the Jew sanctifies him or herself and relates to the holiness of God. These include the prohibition against idolatry, the mitzvah of charity, the principle of equality before the law, Shabbat, sexual morality, honesty in business, honor and awe of one's parents, and the sacredness of life. Also in Kedoshim is the dictum which the great sage Rabbi Akiva called the cardinal principle of Torah, and of which Hillel said, This is the entire Torah, the rest is commentary. Love your fellow as yourself. Thank you, Chabad.org. So the first part of the Parsha, which details the Yom Kippur service and the very specific things that the high priest had to do, is interesting, and there are lessons to be learned from it. I want to focus mainly on Kadoshim and the morality laws. Well, let's talk briefly about this goat thing. So the Yom Kippur service, and Yom Kippur, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is a holiday which is still celebrated. It's considered the holiest of all days on the Jewish calendar. It's the Shabbat of Shabbats. And on that day, Jews gather in synagogue and pray. It is a day of atonement for the past year. We refrain from eating and drinking on that day because we are solely focusing on our relationship with God and atoning for the past year, but also praying and asking for a good new year. I'm saying that we'll be better because that's ultimately the only proof of remorse is not just apologizing and saying sorry, but changing one's behavior in the future. So that's what Yom Kippur is. In the days of the Holy Temple and when the Jews were wandering in the desert, the service looked a little bit different, just like all of the service did because there used to be sacrifices and we don't do animal sacrifices anymore or any type of sacrifices for that matter. So there's this one really interesting part of the 
Yom Kippur service. So the high priest would cast a lot. There would be two goats. One goat would be designated to God, and one was designated to Azazel. And the one to Azazel was sent off into the wilderness, and there was a thread tied to the outside of the temple or the outside of the tent of meeting. And if it turned from red to white, that was an indication that God had accepted the people's atonement and this goat. So this is kind of a weird thing for those of us in 2021. First of all, most of us are not used to animal sacrifice. So anything that has to do with that, even though we know it existed, can't really connect to it. Also, it's particularly weird because one of these goats is to Azazel, but no one really seems to know who Azazel was. And of course, it couldn't have been an offering to someone else because God mentions many times in the Torah that we are only supposed to offer sacrifices to him. So who was Azazel? What is this whole goat thing about? There are lots of different interpretations, like there are for all things in the Torah. A lesson that I learned from it that I particularly like, so I will share with you, is a less literal interpretation and a more metaphorical one which is when we make decisions in our lives, if we have two jobs to choose between or a choice of where we're going to move, we'll make a list of pros and cons, right? We've all listed pros and cons. This job pays more, but this one is closer to home. This one has better hours, whatever the situation is. So the lesson to be learned from the goats, one to Azazel, one to God, is that when we're making decisions between two things, to ask ourselves which decision will lead us to God, which decision will lead us to strengthen our faith, which will lead to our faith being weakened, which will lead to an increased connection to community and which will decrease it. Now, everyone listening might not believe in God, and that's your personal choice, of course. But I think this concept can still hold true for anyone, because when we're making decisions between two things, if we add on this extra layer of which one will lead me to God, or If it's not God, which one will lead me to becoming a better person, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent? Which one will help me be a better friend, a better business partner, whatever that thing is, not just what pays better, which one has better benefits, which one has a better commute, but asking a question of more significance to help us really figure out which choice is best for us. And I I just love that concept because you can write pros and cons, but sometimes it equals out. And this is one way of really, truly making the right decisions for ourselves. So anyway, that was just a thought about, so that's just one thought on the goats in the Yom Kippur service. By the way, this ritual is where the term scapegoat comes from. So the more you know. What I find to be the really interesting thing about these two partio, these two sections of the Old Testament though, is Kedoshim, which is the one that enjoins us to be holy. Oh, wait, actually, I have to backtrack a second, because just before it gets to all of the holiness, there's all of these rules about sexual morality. So God tells us not to be like the Egyptians or the Canaanites, and then not to engage in all of these different acts of sexual perversity, not to sleep with your mother, or your aunt, or your sister, or or your half-sister, your daughter-in-law, all of these people that you're not supposed to sleep with. And yes, most of the examples given are women that you're not supposed to sleep with, but it's not just that men aren't supposed to sleep with them. It's also on women not to sleep with 
men that fall into those relationships. So not to sleep with your father, your brother, your uncle, etc. Also listed there as examples of sexual immorality are bestiality and male homosexuality. And this thought just struck me as I was preparing for the episode today, which is all of our notions of acceptable sexuality essentially come from right here, come from the Old Testament, at least in Western civilization. This is where it comes from. Incest, people still frown upon. Bestiality, people definitely frown upon. Homosexuality, people don't frown upon. I'm not saying we should frown upon it because I don't think it's our responsibility to tell any person necessarily how to live their life and manage their relationship with God. Clearly, some people are gay. That's just a fact. I just think it's interesting that since all of our laws about sexual deviancy come from the Torah, how did it happen that homosexuality became something that it, that's accepted and incest and bestiality didn't? But it's just a thought. This is not a condemnation of anyone who is gay or who is struggling with it. It's just interesting what we as a society and as individuals take from the Torah and what we don't. And we all do it on a individual basis. We do it on the societal level. So it's just interesting. That's all. Just a thought. So there's a ton of sexual morality stuff, which I must say when in synagogue after several weeks of Torah portions about the building of the tabernacle in the desert and the specificity of the different services, reading about the sexual morality laws always was a welcome break because it was something a little bit more interesting, frankly, than the very detailed ritual. Anyway, so that's Achremot. And then Kedoshim, Leviticus 19.1 begins, you will be holy for I, your God, am holy. And then we might expect after that enjoinder that there will be a bunch of very specific rituals about how we live our, that will make us holy. The right food to eat, holidays to celebrate, what we wear, how we pray. And yet the bulk of what follows is actually moral and ethical commandments, like not to gossip or to leave the corner of the field for the poor or to not stand by while a fellow's blood is shed. And I think it's really interesting because it's so natural for us to think that holiness has to do with ritual and some lofty spiritual whatever, but it's not. What God most wants from us, how we can be like him, how we can be holy like God is to be good people, is to be just people, ethical people. And I think that's so incredible. It's actually a really interesting statement because what this teaches us is that this is for everyone. There are things in the Torah that are specific for Jews. Kosher, for example. Jews keep kosher. We don't mix meat and milk. We don't eat shellfish. Everyone else, bateavon. Enjoy. If you want your shrimp cocktail, if you want to eat that while you're listening to me, and then you want a milkshake and then a double bacon cheeseburger from McDonald's, please enjoy. That's fine. But any of us who wants to be holy and who wants to be like God, it's not about the ritual commandments, which are ultimately between us and God. To be holy is to mimic God in our interactions with other people. And that's for everyone. Anyone can be holy like God. You, me, your brother, your sister, your dog walker, your boss, your cousin, your friend, Jewish, Catholic, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, whatever, it doesn't matter. 
If you want to be holy, you can. I think that's such an incredible message and so good for anyone of any faith because I think a lot of religions focus more on the ritual and I think a lot of people from outside of religions assume that the only way that they can get into it is from a ritual perspective. But that's really hard. Like that's changing your whole life. And that can be really a lot for people to swallow. I totally get it. It's not so easy to start dressing a certain way or change the food you eat or what holidays you celebrate. That's a big change. But when it comes to these moral and ethical commandments, most of us are probably following these anyway. We're already on our way to being holy like God. And that should feel good, right? We should stop being so down on ourselves. Like we, we can achieve this. We really can. And in fact, this particular time of the year from Passover to Shavuot, which is the next big Jewish holiday, we count the Omer. And on each day of the Omer, there's a different character trait that we're focusing on. And we count up. We start day one and we go to 49. We're counting up so that each day we are improving in these different character traits. I'm going to talk about the Omer more next week because today is about the Parsha, but this is a particularly good time to focus on improving ourselves. Whatever the thing is that we struggle with, for instance, I sometimes struggle with patience. If people ask me the same question more than one time, even if they haven't heard my answer and they're really just asking honestly, sometimes I lose my patience. So that's something I'm working on. We all have things to work on, but if we want to be holy like Hashem, like God, then now is the perfect time to work on it. Anyway, let's get into some of the specific commandments that we can follow to become more holy. So fear our mother and father. This seems very similar to the Ten Commandments where we are told to honor our father and mother, but you'll notice the slight difference in the commandment. It's honor father than mother. Here it's fear mother than father. So why the flip around? Because honoring one's mother just comes more naturally to people. Think of really buff guys, right, who have heart tattoos with mom in it. People just have a certain love and respect for their mothers that they don't have for their fathers. There's there's a different con- connection between mothers and their children than fathers and their children. There just is. Makes sense. We live in their wombs for nine months. It's going to be different in most situations. Obviously, there are exceptions. But generally speaking, it is easier for people to honor and love a mother. So the commandment has to be first to honor father because we only have to be commanded to do what we don't naturally do. We don't have to be commanded to go to the bathroom because we're going to do it anyway. But fear is different. It is more natural for a child to fear their father and not fear of abuse. Obviously, that is an unhealthy relationship, but just a general fear of who's going to remind me to do the right thing and be good and keep me in line, that sort of thing. People fear their fathers more naturally. So here we have to be commanded to also fear our mother in that sense, to also, if you don't like the word fear, also listen to and respect what our mother says when it comes to these situations and not just our father. So that's one way to be holy. There's also the commandment that when someone owns a vineyard or a field that they're not supposed to glean or gather to the corners all the way to the edges, but that the edges should be left for the poor and for the stranger and for the widow and for the orphan, for those less fortunate who might not have a food source of their own. This might feel like some sort of socialism or something, but we have to remember that everything we have comes from God. So any amount of food that he allows to grow on our fields is a blessing from him. So if he tells us to leave some food for the poor, it's not our food. 
It's his food. He's just telling us what to do with it. Now, today, most of us don't own fields. Ancient Israel was created to be an agrarian society. I don't own a farm. I would guess most of you listening don't own farms, though who knows? Maybe I'm really big in the farmer's market. Ha. So we can't maybe leave the edge of our farm for people, but maybe we give our change, you know, which would be like the leavings of our money, you know, our pennies or whatever. We give that to the poor or we donate clothes. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I think there's still a way of observing this commandment or observing the spirit of this commandment, even if we don't literally have vineyards. Uh, We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to steal. We're supposed to be honest in business dealings. Some of these commandments, like do not steal, are repeats of the Ten Commandments. But you know what? When something's so good, when it's a top 10 hit, there's no reason you can't play it more than once. That's why we have Top 40 Radio. We're also not supposed to rob, and rob and steal are different because rob includes physical force, and steal is you take a package from someone's front porch. So don't do that, and also don't beat up an old lady to take her purse. This one I really like. We're commanded to pay the wages of a day worker that day. The assumption is that a day worker is someone who really needs the money, so we're supposed to pay them at the end of the workday. We can't keep their wages overnight. So a cleaning lady, a plumber, a roofer, anyone like that, unless there's an arrangement figured out, we should pay them for their work when their work is completed because they probably need it. We're not supposed to place a stumbling block before the blind or curse a deaf man. So these are both literal and figurative. We're not supposed to curse a deaf man because he can't hear you. That's not fair. At least curse someone who hears you and then they can fight back. But someone who's deaf can't hear you. So that's unfair. Not to place a stumbling block before the blind. Don't put something in front of a blind person that they'll then trip on. They can't see it. That's It's one thing to trip someone who can see, but to trip someone who can't see is way worse. Many authorities interpret do not place a stumbling block before a blind person. In addition to the literal sense, in a metaphorical sense, sense, which is not to mislead someone. If you're giving someone advice, let's say you're telling a friend not to invest in a certain company because you want to invest in it and you know it will be better for you, you're placing a stumbling block before them because you're giving them advice which will cause them harm and they're not seeing the full picture. You need to give people the full picture. You can't make them blind by not giving them all the information. We're told not to gossip. We are reminded not to favor either a poor person or a rich person when it comes to the law, but that everyone is equal in the eyes of the law. We can't be extra compassionate towards a poor person or extra respectful to a rich, powerful person. The law is the law and money just doesn't come into it or position doesn't come into it. The law applies to everyone equally. And we as judges have to, we have to judge based on justice, not on what feels good. By the way, I was wondering, it's so obvious why someone would favor a poor person from an altruistic sense, because we feel compassion and sympathy for them. Is there an altruistic reason to favor a rich person in judgment? I can't think of one. I just a thought that came to me. If you have an answer, let me know. We're told not to stand idly by while our fellow's blood is shed, meaning if we see someone being hurt to go do something about it. This one also is one of the commandments, which is literal and also metaphorical. Literally, if we see someone getting beat up, we need to do something about it, call the police or break up the fight, whatever we have the capability of doing. But also, if we see someone being taken advantage of in business, you know, so it's their money at stake, not literally their blood, we should still 
step in. If we see someone's name being dragged through the mud, we should still step in and do something. So don't stand by while something bad is being done to your fellow. We're told not to hate people in our heart. Now that's interesting. It doesn't say not to hate people. It says not to hate people in our heart. And Joseph Telushkin and others, I think, point out that Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery hated their brother in their hearts because it says that they could not speak. They couldn't speak to him because their hatred festered so much. It's not healthy to let hatred fester because it just gets worse. If we have a problem with someone, if someone has angered us, we don't just let it simmer. We talk to them about it. We talk to them about it rationally and clearly, but we talk to them about it. A few verses later, we're told not to seek revenge or bear a grudge. So clearly we're not supposed to hate long-term or hate at all, but how much more so that we shouldn't hate in our heart because it just leads to, it just makes it worse. It just makes it worse. And finally, we are told that we may rebuke someone for doing something wrong, but not to bear a sin because of it. Now from the face of it, it might seem that what that means is we don't want to be considered having done wrong because our friend is doing wrong. So if we see our friend stealing, we want to make sure to tell them they're doing wrong. Otherwise, we'll also be liable for their stealing. But in fact, what it means not to bear a sin means that we should not get an additional sin. And what would that additional sin be? Embarrassing the person we're rebuking. We should tell people, or we have an obligation to help people when they're doing wrong. Definitely people in our immediate sphere, children, spouses, parents, if we know they're doing something bad that will harm them and others, we should try to stop them. Even a stranger, perhaps, if that situation arises. But there's a way to rebuke, and there's a way not to rebuke. One of the things we definitely want to make sure when we're rebuking is not to embarrass the person, especially if it's something that they're doing inadvertently. Let's say you're with another Jewish person and they are about to bite into a bacon cheeseburger and you're with a group of friends. You could call them out in front of everyone and embarrass them and then you get an additional sin. Or maybe you find an opportunity in the middle of the meal when everyone else is talking to say something or maybe after the meal. This is a sensitive thing to do, obviously, and you aren't trying to, depending upon the type of sin, depending upon the type of thing the person's doing, you're not trying to make them feel bad. It's an educational moment. So don't turn an educational moment into one of embarrassment because we are told that when we embarrass someone, it's as if we kill them because when we take away a person's good name in front of others, we've taken away all they have. Anyway, that is a brief-ish recap of this week's Torah portion section of the Old Testament, which is read in synagogues every week, Acharemot Kedoshim. And the question to go away asking ourselves is how can we each be holier? How can we be more like God? And we now know that it's not ritual necessarily, but it's being more ethical, being more just and righteous and kind as God himself is. And there are many different ways to make this happen, but certainly one way of becoming more holy is always being a little bit kinder than necessary. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review. And please share the podcast with anyone you think would benefit from some common sense and thoughtfulness. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. You can also find me on Locals at E Pluribus Unum Podcast.locals.com. The intro and end music is Chopin's Etude, Opus 10, Number 1 in C Major, known as the Waterfall Etude.